Love Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Glory is the call. Glory is the call. Thank you for joining me tonight. As I do before I start every broadcast, I always pause and thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for just allowing me to host this show, have this platform, and to be able to reach across this country and just talk to the folks about what I believe are the social, economic, and political impact on our community. Uh and public policy, and social policy, economic policy, and all the things that I think is impacting us uh, across this country, especially given what's going on in Washington uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue at Congress, but and also a lot of these states, a lot of these states are doing some things that uh, we also need to be cognizant of and, and wary of and, and uh, make sure that uh, we stay abreast of because uh, when it comes down to this election next year in 2020, from the Congress to your state houses to your governorships, uh, but more importantly to the Senate, the U.S. Senate, 
and this White House, we need to be vigilant. We need to make sure that we know exactly what's on the ballot, uh, who's on the ballot, and what are the issues and concerns that are concerning us. If you want to join the conversation, please give me a call here at two, uh, 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. But tonight, it's the coming of age of Black Legacy. As we hear the angels in heaven singing with the joy of the Lord, as they welcome home one of God's angels and Elijah Cummings, uh, we now mourn the loss of another giant amongst African-American leaders and former Congressman John Conyers, who passed this past weekend at the age of 90. Both these men left a personal and public servant legacy that will likely stand the test of time, given their long history and their profound impact on public policy and our communities and across this nation. But on Friday, Congressman Cummings, uh, in the presence of former President Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, Representatives Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan, among, along with dozens of other congressional members, the son of Baltimore was eulogized and laid to rest with an inspiring and honoring message by his pastor, Bishop Walter Thomas. More than 4,000 worshipers celebrated the life, leadership, and legacy of Congressman Cummings. And all the speakers that were there were powerful in their own way. As I listened to them, each of them had a moment of reflection that would move your spirit. And you could feel the presence. You can feel his presence in their hearts as they spoke about this amazing giant, Elijah Cummings. His daughters, his daughters amazed and impressed me so much. I mean, not only were they able to stand there and, and, and you know, give testimony and testament of their father and the character and the person that he was, but one of his daughters, in fact, both of them uh, read um, uh, things that they wanted to say, but um, I believe it's his oldest daughter. Um, she read a letter to him. And I tell you, that letter choked me up, had, had, you know, me just sitting there thinking, my God, if my daughter could reflect on our experiences together as Elijah's daughter did with him, if, if she just gave half of that, I would be so honored and proud of the role that I played in her life as a father. Because at one moment she sat there and she said that they have these sleepovers and uh, I guess it's on Sunday where they will sit there and they'll watch the football game and they're sitting on the sofa. And there's times when she would just look over at him to catch a glimpse at him. And she notices that he's looking over, catching a glimpse at her. It was such a powerful letter and a powerful word of what Elijah Cummings meant to his children, his family, but the city of Baltimore, uh, the members of Congress and this nation. President Obama, as expected, honored the angel with words of tribute and elation and praising Representative Cummings. He expounded on his ability to speak to issues with clarity and heart, a heart that yielded the passion and conviction that embraced his complete and total commitment to his oath of public service. So tonight, we'll discuss the coming of age, a black legacy, with the esteemed guest, with my esteemed guest, an icon in his own right an advocate, a leader, a public servant for African-Americans. He is the director of the NAACP's Washington Bureau and the senior vice president for advocacy and policy. 
He is the former director of government affairs for the United Negro College Fund and a member of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, Institute Board. He is a recipient of numerous awards and and recognition, but one of his most proud uh, awards and uh, receipts is that from the National NAACP Megar Evers Megar Evers Award for Excellence. It is the highest honor bestowed upon a national member of the NAACP. My guest tonight, for the first time and hopefully not for the last time, is Mr. Hillary Shelton. Hillary, welcome to the show, my brother. Brother, thank you for having me. It's a deep honor. I've I've listened to your shows over the internet and years gone by and seen so many quotes from it. I can't begin to tell you just how honored I am to have an opportunity to spend this time with you, and especially as we talk about heroes of the NAACP, to myself personally, and of course the agenda for civil rights and human rights for all Americans. I'm just deeply honored to be with you. No, it, it is my honor. I mean, seeing you Friday at the at the funeral at the home going services, I said, you know what? I, I need to talk to Hillary. I I, I got we got to get him on the show. I really need to get him on the show because I know we've tried in the past, but schedules don't always work out. But I'm so glad you were able to take time tonight to come on the show and talk about our heroes because Elijah Cummings. I mean, not to mention the first African American male to lie in state you know, in the in the Capitol Rotunda there and, and be that 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 man that, that I mean it's happened to no other. And and granted, you know, uh uh Pelosi and, and um uh you know allowed this and, and put this together. But that was that in itself was an honor and a feat. No, you're 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 absolutely right. I mean it's what we're talking about is recognizing someone that has stepped in such a vitally important leadership role as chair of the House Oversight Committee. Of course, something one who works very, very closely uh, with Nancy Pelosi and all the House leadership, uh, actually uh, dying as he did. But someone that if anyone has paid attention to the news, certainly, you see him quoted on a regular basis. You see his analysis being unflawed and his passion being clearly there. As he worked to, I would argue first, lift up the importance of democracy itself. You see, he chairs the House Oversight Committee, which means that he's looking at all the government agencies with the lens of making sure they're living up to their commitment, their constitutionally given responsibility of providing right. services to all Americans without discrimination. Right. Right. So when you heard when when the, the the information came across the news or the text message came like it came to me or things like that, what was the first thing that came to your mind when you heard of his passing? You know, I was taken back uh, and for, for a lot of reasons. I, I had worked with uh, Congressman Cummings since he was first elected to the Congress. So what started going through my mind immediately was how he stepped up when Kwesi and Fume agreed to come to become president and CEO of the NAACP. He ran for office in a seat that was once held by Perrin Mitchell. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Kwesi and Fume. Perrin Mitchell was the first African-American elected to that very important seat there in Baltimore and provided so much helpful leadership for us. But it's a seat that's always been extremely close to the NAACP, and that's because Perrin Mitchell's brother was actually Clarence Mitchell. 
who was the first director of the government affairs of the NAACP. So as Clinton would introduce important civil rights legislation, it was Clarence Mitchell on behalf of the NAACP and our units in every state across the country, as well as our units in countries such as uh, Germany and Italy, uh, Korea, and Japan. But that inside-outside strategy of how they played the game to get so much done for us, from the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to the Fair Housing Act of 1960, to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and on to the Fair Housing Act of 1968, and so many other pieces so important to us. I would mm-hmm. say that as I sat in that hotel room, I'd just gone to Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, to prepare for our national board meeting that would be there just a couple of days later as we held committee meetings and others to prepare along those lines. I woke up at about 6 o'clock in the morning, turned on the TV, and he had just passed a little over two hours earlier. So I immediately sent a text message to both his wife, Maya, who I've also known for quite some time, and his chief of staff, Vernon Sims, someone that had been also a staff member for Kwasi and Fumi in the same office uh, prior to Mr. Cummings getting elected. So just what had been done, we've been so successful in doing. And the last thing I'll say is what then, of course, crossed my mind was the last time I talked to him. Uh, I was coming back from a meeting in the, in the uh, Capitol building at about 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. Uh, Mr. Cummings was driving through the Capitol building as well in his little scooter. As you know, since his surgery yeah. and other challenges, uh, he, he couldn't. Um, he didn't have a lot of mobility, but his right. mind was as sharp as ever. Sure, so, it was. So he came across the Capitol grounds and whatnot inside, and and we stopped for a minute. And I I remember saying, you know, Chairman Cummings, and his response was, Hey, brother, hey, brother, love you, brother. What's up? That's the way he always talked. You know, mm-hmm. he was someone that took a great deal of appreciation for constituents, not just those in his home district, but those throughout the country. And certainly yeah. the NAACP has been a big part of that constituency over the years. So we sat and talked for a while about what was going on and the challenges he was having and telling him how we would coordinate and make sure that the NAACP all across the country was very supportive of what he was doing and how crucially important the hearings he was having with the uh, uh, with the uh, House uh, Oversight Committee were to right. so many of us as we looked at issues. And as we talked for just a little while, whatnot, I think we were both seeing we were tired. And it said to him, you know, I said, this is a great. So you got my cell, Chairman. Anytime you need us, you know, the NAACP's got your back. And he just said, love you, brother. Gave me a big bro hug, and then he drove his scooter with the staff person standing next to him uh, on back to his office, and I headed out and grabbed the taxi back to mine. He went into the hospital shortly thereafter and, of course, uh, sadly uh, passed away just a few weeks later. So it was amazing thinking back on all those issues. But then thinking back on his wife. Mm-hmm. I've known Maya Rocky more actually longer than I've known him. Oh, See, wow. Ma- Maya comes from an NAACP family in San Antonio, Texas. Right, her, her father. Daddy, right? That's mm-hmm. exactly right. Her father used to be president of one of our branches. And, of course, in the NAACP family, if the whole family's not there, you just don't get to see him. <laughs> so he's <laughs> always had his wife involved and, and Maya as well. 
I, she introduced me to Maya when I went and went in for a state convention one year. She happened to be in town. Maya was actually working on her Ph.D. at the time. Again, one extremely sharp sister from day one after yes. being impressed by her and then on from there. So just, you know, reminiscing as I sat in my room by myself for a little while just thinking about, you know, how important he was to us from being elected into that crucially important seat to moving very shortly into becoming chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Mm-hmm. And then on from there to the leadership that he's provided on so many crucial issues to the NAACP and, of course, the, the communities we serve all over the country. And that 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 um, that position as a government as the chairman of government oversight, it's a it's an important position and powerful because you like I said he's uh, overseeing all of the government agencies, every aspect of what's happening to make sure that everyone's held accountable for what they're doing and and all the things that need to be done uh, as it pertains to us as as, uh, as Americans and our taxpayer dollars. And it, it's one of those things now where you have to ask yourself, even though there's capable people on that committee, what happens next? How does how does that committee continue to move in the fashion in which he was operating and and being able to make sure that it can still function at its fullest capacity? Not that it couldn't, but just knowing him the way you do, how do we ensure that it functions at its fullest capacity to make sure that everything can be accomplished? I I strongly agree with that point in raising those concerns. You know, the committee, of course, we could read what its responsibilities are, and it would sound very scientific. Um, But as we looked into what it does and how it has been so successful, it's very much driven by the personality of someone with such a strong commitment to shine that bright light, making sure we could see what was going on. See, this this is a guy that... Also had a background of being. I, I have to lift this up because it's my alma mater too. You know, he, he's a Howard man, yeah. and of course, <laughs> what, what we're indoctrinated to at Howard University is looking for ways to improve the conditions for our people by analyzing the realities of what has happened, understanding right. the conditions of where we are, and maintaining that vision for where we're supposed to be going, and of course, what authorizes us in that area. And I think that's why, from listening to Congressman Cummings, you oftentimes hear almost a seamless uh, compilation of the Constitution and an understanding of our laws, process, and procedures, and quite frankly, his own religious faith. Mm-hmm. Some people couldn't tell whether he was a lawyer, which of course he was, or a priest, right. which of course or he priest. did quite often. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true, Hillary. That is so true. It didn't matter what he was talking about. He can make it into a sermon and have you sit in the, I mean, he was so passionate about life. He was Absolutely. passionate about everything he talked about. I mean, every time I encountered him, it doesn't matter what it was, whether he was speaking or just talking to you. Like you said, if you're just walking down the hallway talking to him, he was passionate about what he was saying to you, and he made you feel what he was feeling. I mean, it was was those things that you – yeah, it was like, man, I'm getting goosebumps, you know, and he's just (laughs) sitting here talking to me about the weather. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and, and it would be, you know, but that was, in my opinion, him making, you know, uh, what is academic in the law and what is academic in our policy processes 
into something that's very real for human beings and speaking to the human spirit. And I think he understood those things very well, having grown up in Baltimore, as he did, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. No, I believe he was born in South Baltimore, for those who know how Baltimore is divided and the experiences that go along with having been brought up in South Baltimore during those years. So, so right. all that to say is what we had is an incredible brother who got it, who got the importance of what the role that the government is supposed to be playing but also understood very well the human condition and what was still needed. So our Constitution promises a number of issues around equal protection, equal opportunity under law, but he understood the realities having grown up as he did, that that wasn't always the case and wasn't for everybody. And Mm -hmm. as such, I saw him as someone that would dig into the law, lift the issues up. He would point to where the authority is and what the mandate is to actually provide those that concept, those constitutionally promised uh, provisions of equal protection and equal opportunity under law. And again, every time I saw him, every time I sat down at the meeting uh, with him, and whether it's his role as a congressman from, from Baltimore, his role as the chairman of an important committee, his role for that matter as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, he was consistent consistent in his understanding and his passion for bringing mm-hmm. that understanding into life, into fruition. Again, he was an amazing man, and he will certainly sorely be listed, or missed, that is. So getting back to the point you're raising, what do we do? You know, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough finding someone else that will bring that magic in a lot of ways, when you have so many of the right pieces coming together at the right time to take on the right struggle. What I saw in, in him is right. someone that understood it, that saw the role that he's supposed to play and played it. And so listen, I, I, there's so much we can say about not only him, the man, and him, the leader, but certainly even the policy agenda he was pushing for made so much sense for all of us. He was always on the front line. When we talked about issues of police misconduct and police brutality, he got it. Yeah. And he yeah. struggled with it, and he fought to make sure that we would be protected. As a matter of fact, when Freddie Gray was killed, he was one of the first people on the scene, left Capitol Hill, and headed to Baltimore to find out exactly what had happened and began working even then to try to make sure he brought not only justice for the Gray family, but also the removed to try to make sure this never happened to anyone else again. Right. That's an incredible approach, and, and the way he moved with such grace through that, by that I mean it seemed to understand as if he'd done it before, mm-hmm. what he needed to do right. this time. Right. And he did an extraordinary job of it. Uh, whether we're talking about issues of providing services to poor communities, he had tremendous uh, our large poor communities within the Baltimore city that were part of his district, and he understood those challenges and continued to work to address those concerns as well. And I think for those of us who were fortunate enough to either watch that funeral uh, on television, on C-SPAN or CNN or whichever uh, vehicle, or even uh, whether you, you watched it on your computer, uh, for those of us who were fortunate enough to be there to celebrate that life and, and take it all, all in and see not only what he'd done, but understanding the interconnectedness for many of us of what we were going to have to do. Uh, when we, when as soon as we were done celebrating his life, we understood that the movement that he was so much a part of, that we are all so much a part of, would still need to move forward. It wasn't tied to one person, though clearly he understood it right. and lived it well. 
that we were going to have to do our part too to continue to move that forward because we supported so much. But he was doing really for us. He was. He was. He was just so powerful in everything that he did and how he did it. And and I I, I am concerned. I am. I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm concerned about how that committee moves forward because it is it is the vital committee of getting the information that it needs. The intel community is is just as vital, but that government oversight committee is very vital in getting the information that is needed for the American public to know exactly what's going on in this administration and what's happening. I'm going to take a quick break um, and probably uh, actually hit some things that uh, you'll be very familiar with that we can talk about on the back end. But uh, when I come back, I want to talk about, you know, just the moments that you had with him at the um, UNCF and NAACP and the, those policies that you talked about. We'll be right back and we'll discuss that on the back end. Excellent. If you're not facing your mortgage issues, this can be the most terrifying sound in the world. It means you've fallen behind. It means hope is dwindling. It means you're another call closer to losing your home to foreclosure. Fortunately, there's hope. If you need real help and guidance, call 1-888-995-HOPE. That's 1-888-995-4673. Because nothing is worse than doing nothing. A public service announcement brought to you by NeighborWorks, the Ad Council, and this station. Mom, thanks for taking me to work. Gee, there are lots of people here who don't look like you. Asian people, African Americans, Latinos, everybody's different. Yes, and those differences are good because they mean different ways of seeing, thinking, and doing things. So how come where we live, everyone looks just like us? Diversity shouldn't be left behind at work each day. In our neighborhoods, we can prepare our children for the global life that lies ahead. To better understand the benefits of diversity in your community, log on to www.aricherlife.org. Brought to you by the National Fair Housing Alliance. You're listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 202-652-0708 and share your viewpoint at 202-652-0708. Now back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. If you want to join the conversation, actually give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. My guest tonight is Hillary Shelton. He is the director of the Washington Bureau of the NAACP. Uh, He is a longtime civil rights activist. He's a former director of government affairs at the United Negro College Fund. And he also is a board member of the Congressional Black Caucus Institute. Hillary, um, even thinking about the, the the public service announcement that we had and, and housing and things of that nature and all the work that the NAACP has done dealing with the Fair Housing Act and, and pushing those through and, and uh, having areas of that, 
um, Congressman Cummings was, I mean, he was a staunch civil rights activist and, and moving and pushing things forward. Uh, like you said, from uh, uh, the um, Civil Rights Act to um, gun control to, I know, voting rights and everything else. What were the things that you found him to be, you know, I mean, he's passionate about everything, but what were the things you found him most to be um, very focused on uh, in his role in Congress? Well, I think you began laying it out when we talked about the, a broad set of issues that he saw were extremely important and was very deeply engaged in. But we're also talking about someone that served on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, which means that he's thinking about you know, public transportation systems, which, of course, he's thinking about jobs and infrastructure and things that would make the system work why it is we need to organize our communities and and those services in our communities that would be most helpful. You know, he, ser- he served on the uh, subcommittee on Coast Guard and Maritime Transportation. You can imagine being right there in Baltimore as you're thinking about the right. expansion along those lines of being in the coastal right. areas. He knew that was important. And it was deeply engaged. And even thinking about the railroad and pipelines and, and things that we're concerned about in our communities, like the environment and even how hazardous materials are being disproportionately processed through poor and racial and ethnic minority communities, he understood the importance of serving of those committees. Uh, he's also very, very helpful to us on a number of financial services issues. He understood what the banks were doing and the lack of financial resources uh, into mm-hmm. uh, black and poor communities and right. the importance of pushing to make sure there's more availability along those lines. So and I remember meeting the with the Consumer him. Protection Board. Absolutely, absolutely. As we think about, again, accountability and how too mm-hmm. often it is those in his district, those who are in poor communities and racial and ethnic minority communities that find ourselves in the worst circumstance having the littlest protection and not being able to fully live out what we're supposed to be getting as part of this American dream. I believe he understood those issues very well. I remember speaking to him some as we were moving to pass the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Bill after we recognized in 2008 that as we looked at the disparities in how financial services institutions were treating poor and racial and ethnic minority communities, that indeed their treatment of us was a major component to the economic downturn we experienced in 2008, in which over half of African Americans lost our homes, meaning that's where we lost our wealth as well. So his engagement in government oversight of the agencies that are supposed to be responsible for watching out for these issues also proved to be very, very helpful. At the same time, we were working to get things through in the House, the House Financial Services Committee, addressing banking and lending issues. He was paying attention in his government oversight committee of the various government agencies from Treasury to Commerce and otherwise. They were supposed to be watching out for the rest of us and seeing that indeed that wasn't happening. So it was good to have him actually, again, pointing that bright spotlight of the government holding itself accountable, one committee oversight of another, particularly as we were watching the damages that were being done throughout our country. And I still have that flashback of seeing all those for sale signs and bank foreclosure mm-hmm. signs oh, man. in front of our houses, yeah, and particularly in our communities. So he, he was a great and man in recognizing right. that interconnection. 
and so when you when you think about it as you as you go to tomorrow the next day and you're and you're thinking about all the things that you have to do and how you're going to be focusing on uh, the 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 agenda for the NAACP what are you going to remember most about Congressman Cummings? You know, I guess first that any time we we wanted him, it was a short it was a phone call away. That either we would work it out over the phone or find an opportunity to come and sit down together. And I always knew it was a short conversation. I didn't have to explain to him why we needed this for our people, but just that I think it's time for us to move this part of it. And he would get it, and the conversation would be very much a conversation of strategy. He was someone that was keen about understanding what needed to be in that bill, but also understood the nature of those 435 voting members of the House. Mm-hmm. We wanted to lift up and be able to lean forward to us and move it towards those 100 members of the Senate. And the fight we were going to have to be prepared for with the foundation laid as we move whatever we can get through both of those houses to the president's desk and find some way to get that president to sign this, this legislation. So I'm going to have to think more about – I'll find myself hearing his voice, I believe, in some mm-hmm. of those conversations because it was always a sure-footed voice, if I might, one mm-hmm. we understood it. His discussions and the arguments around it were those that were always passionately laid in facts and experience and history, but ones that always understood the strategies that we had to actually coordinate were ones that were going to make the difference between whether our folks were going to be fully protected or whether indeed we were going to have to have the same kind of fights that sadly we had to have over issues like crack cocaine disparities and other programs that were innately discriminatory and innately racist and biased in their implementation. So what do you think his legacy is going to be when, when you think about it? And, and, and it's one of those things where I'm, I am so glad and happy that during the CBC this past, um, this 49th CBC that uh, BPT black politics today, we actually honored him as our uh, Ron Dellums uh, Legacy Awardee uh, uh, and uh, presented him with a plaque and award for his legacy because it, when I saw him after the um, Democrats took over the House and they got sworn in uh, December 5th or 6th, I think it was, and I was at his reception um, in, uh, in his committee, in the committee room, that the oversight committee room that he was going to take over as chairman, we had the reception there. He came in. And he gave a, a, a short speech where he just talked about the, the, the need for democracy, the need for the integrity of democracy, and the need for us to know and pay attention and make sure that we do what is necessary. And he was talking about it, and I, I remember videotaping that and posting it out. And I, at that moment, I said, that's our legacy awardee right there. And so oh, I, I – mm-hmm reached out to um, his office and, and reached out to Maya as well. Cause I, I know her as well and let her know that we were going to do that honor for him. And we had at the South African embassy, which I thought was apropos because of Ron Dellum's work and, and ending apartheid here and, and shepherding that legislation through and, and, and uh, the Congress that ultimately ended uh, uh, put sanctions on, on South Africa to ultimately end apartheid and, and allow Nelson Mandela to be free and him become president. We did the reception at the uh, South African Embassy and honored him with that award. And it, it, it was just, I mean, when I heard that he had passed, the first thing I thought about it was the magazine uh, that I sent you. Uh, and, and we had him on the cover. And all we said was legacy. 
And I think it was it was just God that told me to do that because I had not no idea that he was going to be sick, had no idea this was going to come exactly. I mean, like none of us did. But I was so happy that we did that. And I was just so excited that I had something that uh, represented him, that honored him, and that was lasting. It's, it's you know, it's printed. It's in, it's in you know, magazine material. Uh, or a magazine form that you know can be passed out, seen, you know, held onto and, and kept for years. So, what do you think that legacy is going to be when you think about that? What's going to be that legacy for him? You know, I I think it's going to be a legacy of of being certain and going against the tide, no matter what. You know, I think he understood the term and lived by simply being unafraid. That doesn't mean he was reckless or otherwise, you know, doing things that he shouldn't be doing and not being calculating in his thoughts and, and his approaches and strategies forward. But it means being unafraid is continuing to move forward no matter what. Look, th- this is a, a small example, but our, the NAACP's national convention was in Baltimore, Maryland, about three years ago now. As we were planning on coming in, I'd spoken to Congressman Cummings about it, said, look, we're going to be in Boston. He said, I already heard, Hillary. I talked to my branch president, and we're getting prepared for me to come and spend some time with you. I said, excellent, excellent. We'll look forward to having you there. But then he had to go into the hospital for heart surgery. You may have heard about that as well. Mm-hmm. They have a, yeah. a valve put in place to, to actually help his aorta uh, function the way it's supposed to and so mm-hmm. forth. And so shortly after the surgery, just called to check on him and whatnot. I spoke to Vernon, and Vernon said, you know, said he's, he seems to be resting well, Hillary. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you and whatnot. I said, well, do you think he'll still be able to make it to the convention? This was about just almost a month out. I guess from that date, he said, I don't know, his doctor wants him to take it easy, but we'll see what's going on. I spoke to the congressman for the very next week, and he was fired up, Hillary, I'm looking forward to coming. I seem to be healing well. I'm looking forward to being there with you guys. Whatnot. <laughs> Wouldn't have an NAACP convention in Baltimore, in Baltimore without and not being be there. there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so... This time went on, you know, I spoke to Vernon again, and Vernon was like, Hillary, I don't know, you know, the, the doctor's not ready to let him do much of anything and whatnot. I said, I got it. I said, listen, we we certainly understand we want our brother strong. And the, the very next week I gave him a call, and he said, Hillary, I'm, I'm excited, looking forward to being there. I spoke to <laughs> Vernon the next day, he said, Hillary, I'm not Good. sure he can come. Sure. <laughs> so you, so you could Imagine. But those of us who know him know that regardless of everything else that's going on, we know what he wanted to do and what exactly. he was going to continue to work to do. Though he was exactly. fortunate enough to have a chief of staff that was a bit more you know, balanced in the realities of the right now, as I believe he was always looking at uh, Congressman Cummings at you know a better tomorrow. We're having Correct. trouble today, but we're going to keep on pushing. Right. We're going to get this done. And Hillary, I'm going to be there. Well, sadly, on the day that he was supposed to come and be with us, Vernon walked in a room. For those who may not know him, he's a he's a tall, good-looking brother. He is. He is. He Very is. Very stately. He's, he's, I'm six six, and he's probably like right there at me, if not. Oh, I think uh, so. Yeah, he is. <laughs> and brother, I, I look up to both of you, my six two, but I appreciate <laughs> what you say. So, I, so Vernon walked in. I said, I said, Vernon, how's it going? I said, Good. So listen, some man gonna make it. He turned around and said, Hillary. His doctor said he can't come. 
That's right. Right. <laughs> we were we were prepared for this. We'll let everybody know how much he wanted to be because he never stopped trying to come and send exactly. message on and whatnot to be read and so forth. And we know that in his heart and mind, there's no place he would rather have been uh, than exactly. there with us. And, 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 so, and so I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, my uh, wrapping that up, I, I think that the legacy forward is that we can't stop. We know we've been through some troubling and difficult times, right? Right. Um, but we can't stop. You know, we we went through a time and we were, I think, maybe enjoyed so much of the uh, the victory of in, electing the first African American president of the United States, mm-hmm. uh, the Speaker of the House, who was the first woman ever to serve in that capacity, mm-hmm. and a very easygoing. A low-talking uh, senator uh, from Nevada uh, right. that had been a former boxer and would, spoke very few words, especially compared to most senators, but right. all of which most people didn't see were lifetime members of the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And all and under that auspices, as we were trying to get anything done, it was amazing how we could go back and forth with our with our Speaker of the House, our Majority Leader in the Senate, and the President of the United States, and move so much an agenda forward that we almost forgot the struggle that it took to get us to that point. And we started right. seeing as we didn't put our shoulders to that wheel, we didn't right. we didn't see that people were going to start backing off, that mm-hmm. revision was going to start occurring. And we right. pushed hard, and we were able to turn out in 2012 and a turnout that actually exceeded the historic turnout in 2008. We had more Americans mm-hmm. that voted ever than any other time in history in 2008. But the tough lesson we learned is 2008 was great, but 2010 has to be equally as great if you want to keep it. Exactly. And we started and losing it. it. And That's people, exactly right, right, they didn't pay attention to those state elections. And and I want to talk about that, too, as we turn to think about who we just lost this past weekend in John Conyers, mm. because yes, him being on the Judiciary Committee was responsible in dealing with Voting Rights Act and, and a lot of the uh, uh, reparations being, you know, introducing the reparations bill and dealing with uh, uh, sentencing guidelines and sentencing laws and Absolutely. things of that nature. I mean, you testify before that committee often in your capacity. Oh, yes. <laughs> Talk to us about John Conyers because he's another powerful giant that we just lost. He wasn't still in Congress. He retired, uh, resigned, retired a few years ago, but still another giant, another giant in, oh, in, the, in the legacy of, of the Congressional Black Caucus. No, without question. He had one of the founders, as a matter of fact, of the Congressional Black exactly. Caucus, a man that had been in Congress for 47 years. Much like Mr. Cummings, they are both born and end up representing their hometowns. As you know, Mr. Cummings represented Baltimore and Mr. Conyers mm-hmm. represented uh, Detroit. Right. So you're talking about someone that came in that turbulent 60s, but was suave and smooth and brilliant in his strategies and his understanding. Someone that had worked for our labor unions and understood where those fights were. Someone that represented the community in so many fights and the like that was then elected as the first African-American congressman from Detroit. Mm-hmm. And he came into Congress in an amazing way. As you said, someone that served on the Judiciary Committee, I'll tell you why that's important. As you know, you mentioned some of the important issues, but when we're talking about policing issues under law enforcement, we're talking about Judiciary Committee oversight. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're talking about issues of hate crimes and the fight to make sure that we have the tools in place for us having to deal with something that's almost as old as America itself, as we think about everything from the Night Riders to the Klan, Posse Comitatus, and the White Aryan Resistance and other groups, John Conyers understood those issues and those fights in an amazing way. As a matter of fact, he's another one that I think he maintained a coolness that allowed him to move smoothly through things because uh, as on the one side of the issue, John Connors loved jazz and loved good music. You probably know He's from Detroit, years. man. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's Motown, that's right. brother. I, Motown, Motown, baby, Motown. Motown. Okay. And let me say on that side of the equation, no one had a better advocate. That is the music community, the performance community, had never had a better advocate in Washington mm-hmm. than John Conyers. Yeah. And but he but he moved smoothly like a little co-train. You know what I'm saying? For those who who love that good old jazz beat and rhythm, mm-hmm. he understood that very well. That was a part of him. A quick story that I want to go into the policies with you some more as well. You know, I was walking past his office one day. Again, one of those. End of the day thing is probably right around 7 p.m. His the the front door to his office was open, and as I walked past, he walked past his front door at the same time. And mm-hmm. in a traditional John Conyers fashion, he said he turned to saw me. He said, "Hillary, my man, what you up to? Come on in. Come on in, <laughs> brother. I, I want to introduce you to somebody." And I said, "Great, great, Mr. Conyers. You know." So we we walked into his office. It had beautiful African artifacts, masks, and the light yes, throughout the walls. Yes, he did. He had a full-size bass violin leaning against one corner, you know, the kind that a jazz bass player would play standing mm-hmm. up and so forth. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of his office was a full-size electronic piano, keyboard, oh, wow. all 88 keys. There was a brother sitting there, you know, being as cooled out as he could be, talking with John Connors. This is just before um, um, CBC, as a matter of fact. And they were talking and playing on the stereo in his office was a little John Coltrane. Uh, that, that would soon be followed by some other extraordinary jazz music. And I jokingly said to Mr. Conyers, I said, Mr. Conyers, I said, brother, this is wonderful. I said, the only thing that seems to be missing is a good drink. And he laughed and said, did you want a drink? Sure. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but that's just the kind of brother that he was. And he introduced yeah. me to the piano player, and he and I talked a little bit. You know, I was a, a new daddy at the time. You know, I have three sons. And so I asked the uh, pianist, you know, how do I get my kids interested in music? And he explained some great things to do, including just having a piano there and so forth. But those are the kind of conversations you could have with the John Connors from that to how do we address the issue of police brutality and racial profiling? Mm-hmm. Those were the bills that he had the courage to not only work with us to craft, but to introduce and advocate through the process. How do we deal with the issue of the fact that somehow or another we were not able to stop the Congress from moving through a crack cocaine bill 
in which uh, actually more than doubled your time in prison. As a matter of fact, it has a, a hundred times the sentencing range of regular cocaine. It's just you buy this stuff cheaper, and we're, our communities are more likely to have it, and we understood exactly. the detriment that it brought on to us and, and those right. who live in our neighborhoods. John Connors would take on those kind of issues. When no mm-hmm. one else was talking about reparations for the transatlantic slave trade, John Connors introduced H.R. 40 with the strong support of the NAACP saying we need a commission to take a look at this issue, be, first study it so we can craft some policy to address it. But we do see a common denominator of African-Americans. That is, we are descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. We know that coming out of slavery didn't allow us to come into the mainstream of society. We recognize that going through the process we did, that between the night Riders that came behind us, leaving the, the plantations, to the, the challenges of the black codes and Jim Crow, redlining and other things that are part of the challenge we had in our society, that much of that was actually laid as a foundation uh, as we were going into slavery. And certainly that foundation began to shift and become more difficult uh, as we came out and tried to enter society. You know, Conyers was also one of those that I would argue was fearless. He would raise the issue. He would bring it forward. He would use his power. But you know what, brother? I've known John Conyers for well over 20 years. I've never heard that brother even one time raise his voice. He was considered one of the coolest brothers in the Congress, and that didn't stop him from moving to make sure that the real issues and challenges of our communities were taken on head first as he moved ahead. So there were no issues that we were asking to take on that he wouldn't take on. It is. And now when you think about it from now, I mean, it's like 2013, the last time we had the Voting Act, uh, Voting Rights Act ratified, I think it was. And you have it uh-huh. sitting over. I mean, they, they've, they've, you know, the House has, has moved it. It's been sitting in the Senate for literally the last five years. What does that what does that do to you, especially coming from the, 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 the heart of the civil rights um uh, mantle and NAACP, the the the, the organization that, that pushed and made voting rights uh, a, a right for us as African Americans. What is it that we need to do, or how is it that we need to make sure or get the Senate outside of making sure we can vote them out that they take this bill up and, and ratify it and move forward? Listen, the the pressure has to come forward from all of us. You got a hundred U.S. senators, and they're elected, as you know, in in three blocks. Are, as you know, only one third of the Senate is ever up for re-election at any right, given exactly. time. That means we have to be forthright and consistent through this process every step of the way. Winning one battle, perhaps electing your choice for even the presidency, only begins a process. It's not an end result. It means that you were able to put somebody else on the field as you planned out your strategies forward, whether it's a baseball field, or a football field, or a soccer field for that matter, but on the field so they can play the game through for us. It means that recognizing that even something as boring as judges has to be talked about and worked on oh as well. Oh, my God, Hillary. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, my brother. Brothers, you know, we have passed some of the most extraordinary legislation. We know that we've had some of the most brilliant lawyers that go into even the Supreme Court, as I think about mm-hmm. the Thurgood Marshals of the world and so many others that were part of those strategies and whatnot. But if, we don't, if we're not consistent, what we start seeing is the kind of rescissions that we've experienced with this administration. 
you know, just to point out something quickly, as I know our time's winding down, just having too much fun. I know, but, man, I know. <laughs> Keep as, this going. But okay. As we're thinking about, for instance, Donald Trump, you know, mm-hmm. if, you th- if you think about what you saw on the news, his first even year in office, they kept showing him sitting at his desk. He was signing what looks like a piece of legislation, and then he'd hold up the portfolio with the legislation in it with his signature uh, in, in right. his, what looked like a piece of legislation. That was not legislation. Right. It was. Those were executive orders. Exactly. Those were rescissions of the kinds right. of policies that we were able to put in place under the Obama administration yep. to provide the protections and opportunities. Um we we slipped because there were some people that said, look, if my particular candidate, this guy that I like a little bit better, this woman I like a little bit better, isn't the choice, uh, then I'm not going to bother even saying what's on my mind by going to the polls to vote on election day. We lost Exactly. That. We lost And we are still And Hillary, Hillary, you, you, you hit the nail right on the head. It, it frustrated me so much that folks who were supporting uh, uh, Senator Bernie – um, and were anti-Hillary Clinton, lost the vision of the agenda of what they were actually out there voting for in the first place during the primary. And they did not understand and did not realize and recognize that there was a Supreme Court open seat that was sitting there that was not being filled. They didn't realize that there could have been one or two more seats to come available. But then they forgot about the 162 open federal seats on the appeals courts that weren't even filled because of Mitch McConnell, and they lost the whole idea of the Senate. They lost it Absolutely. all. And it Absolutely. was mind-boggling to me and frustrating as all get out of how you're going to sit there on your behinds. If you wanted Bernie, how in the heck are you going to go for this guy when he's already told you? He's going to hold women accountable for their abortion. He's going to put in conservative judges who are pro-life, and that's the litmus test for them. And he's going to recall and reverse everything Obama put in place, even health care, um, the ACA. And you're going to still sit there and sit on your behind and not do anything. My thing was go out there and vote. And even if you got the status quo out of uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, at least you maintained. And quite frankly, had they done that, we would have a six to three Supreme Court right now rather than a five to four. And if we don't do something in 20. I don't know if um, uh, um, um, Ginsburg can last another four years to be able to sit there and hold that seat. We will actually flip it to where it's six to three Republican. And if they put another 45-year or 50-year in there, that, that, that changed the whole dynamic, the whole dynamic, oh, without question. everything that but goes you, on. You, you hit it right on the head. Look, understand how that process works. You and I know that the president nominates the candidate that they want to become uh, to sit on the courts in right. the federal courts supreme court exactly. all the way down we also know that it is those judges that actually decide what that l- civil rights law that criminal justice exactly. policy that we've been working on the other exactly. really mean exactly. Here's what it really they means. do the interpretation of that and they can literally change the law, overturn it, change it, re, you know, uh, make it say something else. I mean, look what happened to the, the to the Voting Rights Act. Absolutely. Because, because we had so many people voting in 2012. You had the chief justice saying, well, there's no issue anymore. Look how many African-Americans voted in 2012. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And, and, <laughs> it was and, a black man on the ballot. Oh, without question. Even our brilliant lawyers 
responded to them by saying, look, the reason it worked is be, is like an umbrella opening up in the rain. We right. utilized the law to block the rain from hitting us. You're now saying right. because the umbrella was successful in blocking the rain, we don't need it anymore because we, we don't didn't need get wet. Right. <laughs> oh, exactly. God. Right. Come but, on now. That makes no sense. It, it, it all ties together. And the Senate is crucially important along those lines, crucially and the House important. is crucially important as well. Look, I'll just make one point about the House, and let's, we can talk a little bit more about policy if you want to. But yeah, I'm yeah, also yeah, because I want to ask you about the census and what you guys are doing uh, there um, at the NAACP because that's going to oh. be crucial as well in 2020. Well, excellent. Just the last point I'll make is to think about the structure of our government is the president of the United States is in place right now. And there's discussion about and a movement towards a, a, a impeachment inquiry being made mm-hmm. official this Thursday. Mm-hmm. Well, Nancy Pelosi has had the, uh, the courage to move in that direction against many odds and even attacks from even the president himself. But she's been moving us along those lines to make sure that we can address those concerns as well. I take some appreciation in knowing that the line of succession is a president of the United States as we have now, right. the vice president of the United States, but the next person in line is the Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House. Excellent. <laughs> and, and, I, and I do take some appreciation knowing that at least this Speaker of the House is also a lifetime member of the NAACP. And, right. has voted and, and a lot of people don't... Exactly. A lot of people may not understand that that's the secession because, quite frankly, Mike Pence needs to be impeached with uh, Trump because the truth of the matter is if we take out Trump, conservatives will certainly rally behind Mike Pence. And Mike Pence, legislatively and and um, uh, uh, policy-wise, is far worse than Trump is because Trump doesn't know what the hell he's doing in the first place. He's doing what everybody else is telling him to do. But Mike Pence is going to be much, much worse as anything in there once they remove Trump from office. Well, you, you couldn't be further from from being exactly right. A lot of people don't realize that as Trump was running, because he was not an established uh, Republican activist along the right. lines of a Mike Pence, who was governor of Indiana at the time, by the way, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That, that somehow or another they weren't so sure about him. He was right. he's handled things in such a different way. It wasn't something they were used to. One of the reasons Pence was chosen as that uh, vice presidential candidate is because he'd already gotten his stripes. They right. knew who he was, and he was an established exactly. right-wing right. Republican. They exactly. trusted and his right. ability to move things forward along those lines. So you're absolutely right. Pure right, to... pure evangelical, although his evangelicalism, if I may term a phrase, is so off kilt from the Bible, it's ridiculous. But that was his platform, and that was his mantra. And that's why when he sat back and said nothing with the, 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 uh, um, the tape that came out, with the affairs that came out and all the things, it's like, how are you now going to sit here and promote this religious and, and, and uh, uh, evangelical beliefs of what you're talking about, but then not hold your own man accountable for his actions and do anything? And then you had Liberty University and every um, Jerry Farwell's son and everybody else coming out saying, oh, well, that's okay that he doesn't know Second Corinthians. He can call it two if he wants to. It's okay with us. We're, we're going to like him anyway. You know, those No, you're absolutely about right like, on target. You know, I've, I've never seen the, the right wing as that is, the evangelical community, 
turning their blind eyes. Fold. Exactly. They folded to all those so conscriptions and other problems. Oh, yeah. It's, it's everything it's it was. But let it have been a Democrat or even Obama. I mean, if you recall, Michelle got hate mail and everything else for having her arms out. They they went and they went in an uproar. Remember when she wore the the dress that had the, the arms out, and they I went did. uproar about that. And then they then they wanted to talk about her her behind is like, uh, but her behind. I mean, oh my God, what 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 is what are we gonna do? That's our first lady. But yet you have Melania who's on the centerfold. They haven't said a darn mm. thing about it. A darn well, thing about you. it. Exactly, exactly, and, and and thank God the rest of us who happen to be from the black community that uh, that Michelle Obama is from recognizes the fine, extremely brilliant sister we see exactly. here. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know that it's like, come on now, we know exactly, and that's why they were so afraid. That's why they were so afraid. You know, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. Absolutely. With so let me transition real quick because I know we time is running. The census. I know you guys are doing some things with the census. You found Absolutely. some lawsuits. What is going to be the strategy and plan? Because I actually was at the Urban League speaking, and I moderated the panel for the census. And I was talking about the realization that the census is coming out in a year and a time, that we have a, a very volatile presidential election. At the same time, it's only coming out for about six, seven months, from March to August, a very short period of time where now it's going to be electronic and all these things are happening where clearly there are going to be uh, uh, issues that could happen that are going to certainly impact us in our community. Tell me some of the things that you're doing with your lawsuit and some of the strategies that you're looking for to try to ensure that not only our voting rights issues that we're having to deal with in North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida and places like that, but now the census. Those are going to be two very important and tough things to deal with. And how are you guys going to plan on uh, reaching us? No, you're absolutely right. Certainly, as we talk about the census, we're not only thinking about issues of, of first, you know, the census count, reapportionment, the redistricting, to make sure our district lines are cut in a way that we can be represented by those who will be elected. But we're also thinking about making sure that as we're doing that count, so much of our federal funding is also based on those numbers, whether we're thinking about first responders, issues of hospitals, our schools, whether we're thinking about other services that are provided for us. The census is absolutely crucial. What that means is as we've fallen behind with how this administration is handling things, we haven't think in terms of a number of the issues. Number one is as we're moving ahead, we want to make sure there's no, sh- no slowdown in those resources being made available to us. We're going to run out of money. Uh, as we move towards this new year, and we're going to have to make sure that we have a, what's called a continuing resolution in place mm-hmm. to make sure those resources right. fall as right. they should. So right they now, cut the that's the for it. They cut the budget for it. Yes, they did. And as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, as a response, those who we thought were best qualified to be able to run the census realized that the resources they weren't giving them was not going to make that possible and made the issue by actually uh, resigning from those positions while talking about and actually uh, letting people know how bad things were as they moved through the process. So we want to make sure as we're thinking about FY 2020 appropriations through the Department of Commerce that we have in place plenty of funding for the Census Bureau, but we also want to make sure they're feet on the ground. We recognize that sometimes there are often a movement to say, well, if we computerize everything, we're going to do, be just fine and get it done. But listen, we also know, so looking at the real data, that there's still a, a breach in the African-American community as we're thinking about computers and broadband and Internet entering our homes. 
We have right. some access. It's within about our smartphones, but we are underrepresented when it comes to bringing those services into our houses and our homes. So our fight now is also to make sure that we have people on the ground and the people from the communities that we need numerators are the people who are going door yeah. to door. No one knows door the neighborhood better than we do. So right. the NAACP is actually doing training now. Right now we're going through our state conferences. Uh, each state conference has been having training meetings with our, our civic engagement department, just training them on how to prepare for the census. We're pressuring and working with our coalition partners on Capitol Hill as they move to make sure the resources in place and we have strategies that will help us move forward and make sure that everybody is counted the way the census is supposed to be. We're refuting some of these ridiculous things like wanting to count uh, people, the people having to let us know whether they're citizens or not. The census doesn't make a difference, make a distinction. Exactly. The census exactly. wants to know who's here, how many folks here. are here, because exactly. this is what we have to plan for. And so we continue to work in that direction and try to make sure that people don't feel intimidated and will share the information with us so we can indeed make sure that everything we need is in place and moving ahead. So, brother, we're having to fight at a number of different levels. Uh, our state conferences are preparing at the state level, working with our local branches throughout the country. Uh, and whether it's cities like Baltimore and St. Louis, like my hometown, Chicago, and otherwise, or even small townships, we want to make sure the count's accurate there as well. And we want to make sure that as we get to the point where first we do a reapportionment, that that's accurate, but then when we get to that big fight of where we're going to cut those district lines, we want to make sure our people are trained and engaged and prepared to take it on to see to it that indeed people that reflect our values are going to be elected into the state houses and the city councils, into the Congress, the Senate, and hopefully as we move ahead even into the presidency as we move towards our next election. So there's a lot going on. And if anyone listening wants to know more about what's going on where you are, you can go to our website at naacp.org, O-R-G, and pull down the census plan. But you can also use that website to find out where your closest unit is so you can reach out to them and find out much more personally what's going on on the ground in the areas that you live. Well, please um, keep me abreast. I'm going to stay in contact with you much better than I have been, than we have been, because I certainly want to be a part of that process so we can come on the show. You can air, talk about whatever you want to talk about and how you we can put it out there and what we need to do in any of the state areas, and especially if something's coming up. Let us know so we can put it on our website, put it in our magazine, and also talk about it here on the air and put something out like that. And and as we as we wind down and think about it, talk to me about what's at stake. What's at stake for us? Because when you think about these two giants, these two masters of intellect, uh, with Congressman Conyers and, and Com, uh, Congressman Cummings, and what they've done and what you yourself have been able to do um, in, the, in the civil rights space, what's at stake for us as African-Americans leading uh, – throughout this 2019, but 2020 and beyond, what do we have to make sure we're aware of? What do we have to make sure we're participating and in, in, in powering behind and, and getting behind? Because a lot of times people don't understand and see what you and I see because we're in, engaged in it on a regular basis. But how do we make sure they understand what's at stake for them and their families? You know, every step of the way and every stage in the process, understanding where we are and what impacts where we are. If we're thinking about change, we want to think about the changes that we want and how we need to go about accomplishing those. If we don't lay down a foundation to be able to control for our environments, for our communities, our families, our, and each other, 
uh, then we're going to lose it. What we're seeing is whenever we are not moving moving forward, somebody's pushing us backward. And we, and we talked right. about what happened with Obama coming in in 2008 and how we were moving forward for those first two years, but then the setbacks of not participating in the midterm elections and what happened in the House that about a year later followed in the Senate. So we have to continue to push forward for what we want to be very clear about what we want and what we don't want and recognize that the structure itself of our government, that democratic small d government of the people, by the people, and for the people means that we have to be on that playing field again. That indeed what we're doing is not spectator. If you're not playing, you're losing. So right. in other words, we want to be actively engaged in the process of making sure the right people are able to run and get behind whoever your candidate is and make sure they understand what your issues are. We have to make sure we hold those who are already in office accountable to carry forward an agenda that's important to the communities we serve. Or maybe we have to decide that somebody else needs to do it. And certainly they can't because they don't seem to understand what needs to go forward. We're going to have to understand that we've lost a lot. And we will lose we more have. if we don't continue to push forward. But whether we're thinking about where we live, where we can buy a home, where we're going to have our children educated, where health care is going to be provided, whether we have health care insurance at all. We're going to talk about how police officers treat us and the kind of the need that we have for law enforcement and how it needs to work in sync with the communities we live in and not against the communities we live in. We have to take all those issues into consideration and know that we've seen that we can do it. If America can elect an African-American president that can nominate an African-American attorney general, that can nominate an, a Latina to sit on the Supreme Court, that can move us forward to get minimum wage for any company uh, that are raising the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour for any company that contracts with the federal government, there's nothing that we can't do. If we aren't willing to work together to coordinate our work and make sure that, as we see, no matter how different we may be, red, yellow, brown, black, and white, there's a convergence in interest that can help make our nation better than ever and give our families a better opportunity to succeed than we've ever seen before in this country. You 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 hit it right there, and 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 I want to I want to ask this one last question about the the Supreme Court and the justices because I think that's one area that we don't necessarily talk a lot about that we miss out on understanding the value, the importance, and the repercussions even of what that is because I know that when uh, President Obama was waiting to you know trying to work through the Senate. I was hoping I, I I was calling people and talking to people and I said, have him recess appoint um, um, uh, Loretta Lynch and be the first African American woman to sit on the bench and force them to take her off the bench when they if 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 they happen to win like if if Donald Trump happened to win I said put her on the bench and force them if if they actually win to take her off but I also thought putting her on the bench would have motivated black folks to support Hillary to go on and vote to keep her on the bench at the same time. We have to recognize that that Supreme Court is vitally important to our future as African-Americans because you talked about civil rights. Uh, those issues are, are germane to everything that we need to do because those laws and those fights are going to get to the Supreme Court. Without question, it is a court of last resort, the final arbitrator, and everything you say right. is right on target. Let me first say Loretta Lynch is brilliant. 
and would make an yeah. extraordinarily effective Supreme Court justice if, if, she, if we were able to find a way to put her on that Supreme Court. Her qualifications and experiences, the things we've done with her both nationally, thinking about her work in New York and then as the first right. African-American woman attorney general of the United exactly. States, and thinking about her internationally. I've worked exactly. with her with the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland, as we've mm-hmm. moved to advance and improve on what's going on in our country and elevate those issues in internationally as well. I th- the, the issues you're talking about, the, the great strategy you just laid out is one that we should push for, we can push for. We've done it before, and one then we can do it again, especially when we know that the challenges we have are much more important. Well, I should say much more important now, but at least as important, if not more now, than they've ever been. Where we are now is a vital position. It can shift one way or the other. We've got a president that doesn't seem to get our agenda at all and is working against it and, quite frankly, bringing back, I guess, what is his slogan? Make America great again. I'm trying to remember when that again is. I can't see any point in our history that I want to return to, but I can see a vision for our country, which I want to get to. And in essence, what he's offering does not provide that service. The point you're making, brother, is right on target. If we're not organized and seeing that this has many moving parts, and we all have to be responsible for helping to move some of this forward and as much as possible, then we're missing the point, and we're going to lose out in the final analysis if we don't take it seriously. I want to thank my guest tonight, Director of the NAACP Washington Bureau, Hillary Shelton. I want to encourage everyone to listen to the broadcast tonight. Make sure you go to NAACP.com, uh, excuse me, .org, and, yes, and sign up, register, and make sure we get involved because we need to make sure that we are involved in this process this time around. If we sleep like we did in 2016, we're going to get slept on when 2020. So do not sit back and do not do anything uh, that is contrary to making sure your voice is heard, your vote is counted, and your presence is felt across this country. I want to thank you again, Hillary, man. I appreciate you, my brother. I'm going to be talking to you because I got some other things I want to talk to you about in terms of helping you out with the census and helping out with the um, make sure the voting rights and all the other things we can do here for BPT to support you and do whatever we can do. But certainly, man, I, I appreciate you taking the time out and, and blessing us with the history lesson that you've given us and the expertise and understanding of what is at stake for us and where we need to go and how we need to get there. Um, given the, the loss that we had in, in, in Elijah Cummings and, and John Conyers uh, in, in a matter of two weeks span and the, and the giants that these two men were. So I want to thank you tremendously for giving me your time and, and your insight and intellect and knowledge to help support uh, uh, just forwarding what we need to know as African-Americans uh, across this country and across this nation. Oh, brother, thank you for having me. Let me just say that I think you've called it out very, very well. I'm so deeply honored to be here with you. And maybe we'll take advice uh, in the spirit of John Connors, in the spirit of Elijah Cummings, and quite frankly, in the recognition of John Lewis, that great civil rights leader out of Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to get Absolutely. into some good trouble together. The kind of trouble that changes our nation in the most positive way and in the spirit and in the love for those great men and so many others that have given their lives to help us advance what we need in our communities. Absolutely. Thank you. I thank you. I thank you, sir. Until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. I look forward to seeing you next week where we will be talking to Senator uh, Vincent Fort from Georgia, and we'll be talking, talking to him about so many things that are happening there in Georgia and the, um, the, the, the voting rights, as well as the census down there in Georgia and what's happening with Stacey Abrams.
So until then, if it's social, economic, or political, it's a black policy thing. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Hillary. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. All right, man. Have a good night. You too. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today. <laughs> <laughs>